God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. In Advent, it's the season where we are looking forward in eager anticipation and longing for the coming of Christ. And this morning, we're going to be dropping anchor down in John's gospel. If you're new to the Bible, uh, there are four sort of authorized biographies of Jesus Christ. We call them the gospels. Uh, All four of them are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are uh, recording the life and ministry of Jesus, and they all tell the exact same story with 100% perfect accuracy. But all four of them are unique because the Holy Spirit is speaking through unique individuals and authors. For example, Matthew was a tax collector, so he's a numbers guy. So he just sort of gives the story straightforward. Uh, Mark was a man of few words, so he approaches it sort of like uh, ESPN Sports Center. He just hits the highlights. In fact, he skips over the birth story altogether and starts his gospel at the baptism of Jesus. Luke was a medical doctor who loved research and details. So his birth account is full of details, like Jesus' genealogy, uh, the multiple prophecies that preceded his coming, the announcement of the angels, the lyrics to the song that Mary sang, uh, the details about the physical structure that Jesus was born into, uh, even his visitation list and who came and saw him. And then there's John's gospel, John, that we're looking at today. John is sort of the philosophical deep thinker of the bunch. He's like your friend who studied philosophy in college and is always reading new and fascinating books, uh, who's always posting interesting articles on social media, the kinds that you will actually read. That is John. And in John's telling of the Christmas story, he doesn't start in a manger or with the announcement of an angel. He doesn't paint a picture of a warm, fuzzy baby Jesus in swaddling claws or donkeys or camels. John actually starts in the beginning, like the beginning beginning, like before time began beginning, before the world was created in that beginning. And John wants us to know that before Jesus showed up in a manger, he already had a history as long as eternity itself. That before Jesus was a little baby in a manger, he was a very big God existing from eternity past. So John's priority in his gospel isn't just that we know that Jesus is special, although Jesus is, of course, special. John's priority isn't just that we know that Jesus um, uh, is perfect, although Jesus is perfect. John's priority is that we know that Jesus is no one less than God himself. And here's why this is important for us, City Light Church. Here's why I wanted us to study and anchor our hearts in this passage. It's because if we approach Christmas this year just celebrating a small baby Jesus in a small manger, it will draw out of our hearts a small worship and a small wonder that will fit neatly in the margins of our lives. But John's gospel doesn't let us get there. He doesn't let us do that. He doesn't even give us the option of looking at Jesus as the sweet little eight-pound, six-ounce, golden fleece diaper baby from Talladega Nights. No, he brings us, uh, uh, he brings Jesus onto the center of an IMAX theater screen, and he brings us face-to-face, nose-to-nose with Jesus's vast eternal transcendence, with his bigness. And when we come to see that Jesus, the eternal God Jesus, if our hearts are willing to behold him as he is, we can't help but be in eternal awe and wonder that such a God 
Such an uncaused cause, such an eternal divine, such an infinite being would then make himself small at Christmas. That this big God would make himself a helpless, dependent, nursing infant in a barn with a trough for a bed. All to save sinners, to save you, to save me, to redeem the world from sin and death. And so City Light, this is my prayer for us this Christmas season, that we would behold the bigness of our God who became small for our sake and that we'd be driven to a big worship of him this Advent week and this Christmas season. So let's hop into John's Christmas passage. We're actually going to commit ourselves to just four verses this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3 and then down in 14. We're going to follow a two-point outline. And what I want to do, I want to give us two points to ponder this Advent season that should awaken our hearts to wonder and worship. Here's the first one. It's very simple to say. It's very complex to communicate. The first point is simply this. Jesus is really big. He's really big. Eternal God, creator of all. So let's hop into it. Remember, again, John is a deep thinker here. He's not just a storyteller, so we're going to have to think deeply uh, this morning. You guys ready for that? Be ready to think and take notes. Here we go. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So I love this. John comes out of the gate swinging. He comes out hard. He's only got 21 chapters to tell the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, and he doesn't waste his time telling a clever introductory story to get our attention, some fun statistics to pique our interest. Instead, he just comes out swinging, and he wants us to know priority one in his telling of the Christmas story that Jesus is none other than God himself. He essentially starts his gospel by saying, I want you to meet someone who already was when the beginning began. To understand who Jesus is, you need to start a lot further back than the manger. You need to go all the way back to the beginning. Then you need to jump outside of the beginning before the beginning began and see that already there Jesus was. When John says in the beginning was the word, the word he uses for was in the Greek is the Greek word me. This is why this is important. There are other words at his disposal that he could have used. He could have used the word genomai, which also means was, but he didn't. He chose a me. Now, why am I flexing some Greek knowledge? I'm not doing it just to show off. It's important. Here's why. Anytime the Bible talks about something being in existence rather than coming into existence, it uses the word a me. So if you have your Bible still open, scroll down on the same page to verse 6. There, John the Gospel writer introduces John the Baptist, and he says this. He says, there was, there's our word, a man sent from God whose name was John. So we see the same word in our English, was, but it's a different word in the Greek. He uses the word genomai. That verb, genomai, or was, that John uses for the other John means that he came to be. That John the Baptist wasn't, but then he was. He was not, but then he came to be. That is John. Are you with me? But for Jesus in verse 1, he doesn't use that word. When he says, in the beginning was the word, he says, in the beginning a me, the word. In other words, he already was. That at the beginning, he already was wasing. That's the literal language translated into Waverly for you. Okay? So Jesus didn't come to become. Jesus just was. At the beginning, the beginning, when everything else began, Jesus didn't begin because Jesus already was, wasn't. 
at the beginning. Before time was, Jesus was. Before creation, genomai, Jesus, me. Before space, time, matter, and mass were, Jesus was. City Light, this is more than just philosophy. This is good news because it means we believe in a Jesus who never was not. We believe in a Jesus who was there in the beginning. There is nothing that Jesus has not seen, has not been through, or experienced. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't understand or hasn't witnessed firsthand. The God that we get to call friend has seen all, been there through all, and is intimately aware of all things. Before time was, Jesus was eternally preexistent. Now, when John introduces Jesus, notice he doesn't use his proper name, Jesus. He introduces him what? As the Word. The word there is Lagos. Why does John introduce Jesus to the world as the Lagos or the Word? Well, remember, John is a first century writer writing to a real first century audience, and he's being a good missionary to his target audience. He's trying to help them understand who this Jesus is in terms that make sense to them. And for John, his target audience was both Jewish and Greek. And both the Jews and the Greeks both had an understanding already of the Logos, of the Word. Okay, So the Jews had a concept of the Logos as the personification of God's activity. The Word was God's self-expression. It was God's revelation of himself. This is the Jewish understanding of the Word or the Logos. Now the Greeks also had a concept of the Logos, but it was different. It was a philosophical notion. To them, the Logos was the ordering principle of rationality behind the universe. The Logos was the principle that holds the cosmos together and give it meaning and rationality. So they didn't view the Logos as a personal force, but it was an impersonal reality, a rationality that undergirded all things. And so here, John is strategically speaking both to the Jews and to the Greeks, and he uses ideas that they already have, but he adds meaning to it. He puts some meat on the bones of this idea, and he is showing the Jews that there is a logos. There is a self-revelation of God, but it's not only prophetic words and written scriptures. So, too, it is a person, Jesus Christ. Likewise, he's showing the Greeks that there is a logos. There is a universal principle undergirding all of the cosmos, but it's not an impersonal force. It is the personal God of the universe Jesus Christ. One commentator wrote that, quote, this declaration would have fallen like a bomb on the Greek philosophers. The idea that there is a person behind all things, behind all the cosmos, and as such, there is a personal purpose for our lives, something and someone that we're made for, and that the end for which all things exist, the story of everything that is, finds its source in a person, the Logos. It's amazing. Next, back into our text, John, the gospel writer, says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this is fascinating. John has already told us that in the very beginning, Jesus already was, wasing. He is eternal. He is eternally pre-existent. And to the original audience, they would have perked up and said, Well, that kind of sounds like a God kind of thing. Is John saying what we think he's saying, and we can conclude he is, because here, now he says it a little more explicitly, Jesus is God. 
The Word was God. So theologically, here's where we would separate from our Jehovah's Witness and Mormon friends. To deny that Jesus is God is to deny the Bible and the power of the gospel. This is not an insignificant detail. Verse 2 couldn't be any more clear. Jesus is God. If we believe the Bible, we have to believe that Jesus is God. John doesn't say that Jesus was 50% God or he was kind of like a God or he became a sort of God or that he was a manifestation of God, but that he was 100% pure, bona fide, genuine to the core in every way. God himself, Jesus is God. Then John says, not only was Jesus God, but he was with God. That messes with your head. How can he say that Jesus is simultaneously God and he is with God? He is introducing this idea that we know as the Trinity. The idea of a divine father and a divine son and a divine spirit. One divinity who exists uniquely in three persons. The Godhead, the three in one. The very blueprint of relationship. An eternal singular God who exists in community for all of eternity past. And within this trinity, before the manger or the star or the choir of angels was Jesus Christ. Fully divine. City Light, this is good news because it means we have a Jesus who is no less than God himself. He is not just a prophet of God or a miniature God or a God junior or a chip off the old block. We have a Jesus who is in every essence God himself. Now take a look at verse 3. It says, And all things were made through him, the Logos. And without him was not anything made that was made. So here John is taking us all the way back to Genesis, to the creation account. Maybe you noticed the very introductory phrase of John's gospel in verse 1 was the very same phrase of Genesis, in the beginning. John, the author, is intentional here. He wants us to perk up and go, oh, I've heard that before. He's talking about the beginning, the creation of all things, where all things start. And he's already told us that in that beginning, Jesus already was wasing. He's already told us that he was God in that beginning. He's already told us that he was with God in that beginning. But here he's telling us that in that beginning, Jesus wasn't just a spectator watching things go down. He wasn't there in the bleachers as an observer or a fan with his foam finger up watching his father create the world, John tells us that in the beginning, Jesus was creating all things. That Jesus, the Logos, was the creating agent who created all things. Jesus is the architect, artist, builder, and creator of the cosmos. It says that he made everything when there was not yet anything. Here's why this is fascinating. My daughter is sort of a budding artist, super creative. She loves to create. That's her expression as an image bearer of God. So she takes colors that already are in God's creation, and she, she manipulates them onto a canvas that is preexistent, and she makes beautiful new things that weren't before. But she's mixing that which was to create something that was not. So too, she loves to dance. She's in ballet and, and all kinds of things. And she takes uh, you know, melodies and beats and rhythms and her arms and her legs that God has already created. And she forms them into something. She takes already created things and makes beauty. But Jesus takes nothing and he creates everything. He doesn't need raw materials. He doesn't need a canvas or paint. He creates color and matter and time and space and energy and light and life. He takes nothing 
And with the power of his word, he creates everything. The theological word here is ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. Let your mind ponder this for a minute. When there was no matter, no material world, God created matter. But in order for matter to exist, there needed to be space. There needed to be a where for the what to exist. So in order for God to make matter, he had to create space. But in order to create space and matter, a where and a what, there had to be a when. There had to be a time, a linear succession of moments wherein the what and the where could exist. So God, out of nothing, speaks in time, succession of moments. He speaks in space, a where, where there was no where. He speaks a what into the where, where there was no where, no what, or no when. All of it, out of God's creative mind, he speaks it in out of nothing. And in the midst of that, he creates the most amazing thing, life animation, will, emotion, relationship, image bears in his own likeness. John said, where there was not anything, God created everything. From the furthest star to the smallest atom, he engineered all of this in his mind and he spoke it into existence. That's the baby in the manger. Colossians furthermore says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. What that tells us is Jesus is not only the source of all things, he is the point of all things. What's the point of the Milky Way galaxy? It's Jesus' glory. What is the point of physics and economics? Jesus' glory. What is the point of the animal kingdom? Jesus' glory. What is the point of all of human history? Jesus' glory. What is the point of your vocation and your family and your life? Jesus' glory. Do you see how John is opening up his biography, how he is introducing the world to Jesus, how he is telling this Christmas story? He wants us to see the bigness, the transcendence, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that he is above all and before all and the source of all and the point of all things. In City Light, I'm convinced that more than ever, the church needs an elevated concept of Jesus. I'm convinced that our greatest need personally, your need and my need, is not for our circumstances to change 20%, but to actually see a bigger Jesus, to see him as he really is, to see that he is bigger than our biggest ideas, holier than our highest thoughts, more powerful than our best imaginations, more gracious than our deepest needs, more peaceful than our greatest fears, more forgiving beyond our lowest failures, more dignifying than our greatest shame. Before all things is Jesus. In all things is Jesus. Through all things is Jesus. And after all things is the transcendent Jesus. The point of everything in our lives is to know and glorify Jesus. City Light, if you're a growing Christian, Jesus should always be becoming bigger in your mind's eye, never smaller. That's the picture that John is painting for us. That the more we know Jesus, the bigger he becomes. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we are in awe of him. Personally, I trusted Jesus when I was 16. And at the time, I was very thankful to have a Savior who loved me and forgave me. Jesus got me out of hell. And he got me into heaven, but if I'm honest, he was not my treasure. He was not the aim of my life. He was not my all. I found him very useful, and he was, and I was thankful. 
But as I've walked with Jesus for the better part of 23 years, he is no longer just useful to me. He has become more and more the big E on the I chart of my life. I can now see him as the source of all things and of me and of my faith and the aim of my life. And the more that I see of the world and the more that I see of Jesus Christ, the more of which I am convinced that Jesus is my only hope in life and in death and the end for which I will live. Paul in Colossians says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Is Christ your life? Christ becomes our whole life. And by God's grace, I hope that I can look back 20 years from now and giggle at my understanding and picture of Jesus and think I barely knew him. He has gotten so much bigger. Do you have a big view of Jesus? Do you have a growing view of Jesus? John introduces us to the Christmas story with Jesus' bigness. He wants us to know that he's infinitely big. He is God himself, creator of all, eternally vast, the source and sustainer of all things. And now, with this view of Jesus in your mind's eye, let's take a look at our second point to ponder this Advent, which is that Jesus became really small. A man living among us. Go down the page to verse 14. It says, and the word, there's our word, the logos, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so the Logos, who was a me, who always was wasing, the eternal pre-existent one, who never was not, who is the ordering person behind the cosmos, who is the architect and creator of all things, this God, it says, became flesh. That means became a human. We call this the incarnation. Now, a real quick theological side note. This is uh, eternally important. Don't hear what this text is not saying. It doesn't say that Jesus laid aside his deity when he took on humanity. He never stopped being God. In fact, the early church fathers said it this way. They said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So what we're looking at is addition, not subtraction. Nothing about who Jesus was was diminished. He didn't become any less God. He was in no way less eternal God, creator of all things, or the ordering principle behind the cosmos. But while he didn't cease to be any of those things, he took on humanity as a baby. Take that in for a second. If we didn't have in John's gospel verses 1, 2, and 3, then verse 14 wouldn't be that big of an idea. That God sent a savior. It's good news. That's helpful news. And God knows we could use some help down here. But that's not what this is saying. It's not saying that that God sent a representative or an angel or he created a special man to come and help save the day. It says that the word became flesh, that God himself came down, that the one who made man became a man. City Light, this is greater than any fiction you could ever read. This is greater than any movie you could ever watch. This is stunning to pause and think about, that the word became flesh, that deity took on humanity. And verse 14 says that he dwelt among us. You could translate that Greek phrase literally to say he pitched his tent and made his home among us. Jesus pitched his tent to let us know, hey, I'm here for a while. I'm not just passing through. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you can tell that they're done with the conversation before you're done with the conversation? In Nebraska, we have a secret code for this. It's a, it's a four-letter word, W-E-L-P. 
Welp. The universal Nebraskan vernacular to say we are done talking now. If they don't get the hint, you look at your watch and go, Welp. I don't think they say that in other states. That's our thing. Right? Welp, I better let you go. Or have you ever had someone to stop by for a visit and they keep their coat on the whole time? And you're really uncomfortable, right? We have a whole phrase for this, like, why don't you take your coat off and stay a while? Well, what John is showing us in verse 14 is that Jesus took off his coat and stayed a while. And while he was here, he wasn't glancing at his watch the whole time saying, well, Jesus made his home among us. The eternal God found himself at home in our midst. This is showing us our access to God. He didn't just show up in a sign to behold or a book to read. He showed up as a person to know. He pitched his tent and made his home among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Furthermore, John says, and we have seen his glory. In the Old Testament, to see the presence and the glory of God was usually a terminal event. God's perfection is too great. His holiness is too pure. And sinful man cannot look at the glory of God when he would appear. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says that the seraphim who were around God had six wings and two of them were devoted full time just to covering their eyes so that they wouldn't behold his holiness and his glory because he was too holy even for the angels. But in Jesus, John says that the glory of God comes near and it becomes accessible. It becomes visible. That we, sinful man, can look into the face in the glory of God. How? John, again, tells us at the end of verse, at the end of this verse, he says he was full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Logos who became man, was full of truth. He was full of truth because he didn't compromise God's standards in the slightest. He didn't lower the bar, as it were. He didn't diminish God's holy law. He didn't soften the truth, but as a man... He himself fulfilled the law of God. God became a man to fulfill the law of God in the place of man. He became our substitute in obedience in perfect truth, holiness, and he was full of grace. Donald Barnhouse said it this way, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops down is grace. Jesus is full of grace because he stooped to our level, because he condescended to be like us, to be with us, and to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. For you to stoop down and tie a toddler's shoe is a grace. For God to bend down and become a man is the ultimate grace. He stooped down to save us. The creator of time entered time. The maker of men became a man. The author of life wrote himself into the story. The father of mankind became dependent on a human mother. The sinless one, 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin on that cross. He was stretched onto a tree that was stretched out of a seed by him. He was held to that cross by nails that were held together by him. The big became small to offer himself to us, full of grace and truth. Let me end with this. As we reflect on this first advent, My prayer for us is that earnestly it would blow you away 
that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Would that echo in your head? Would you ponder its meaning in the mystery all week? Would Jesus be bigger in your mind and in your heart than he ever has been before this Advent season? Would you see him for who he is and would you be struck by his grace and his truth? And would your response be worship? Worshiping Jesus with your mind. Worshiping Jesus with your family this week. Worshiping Jesus all throughout the week. Worshiping Jesus on Christmas morning. Worshiping Jesus above the gifts, beyond the stress, and in the midst of the Christmas parties, would you be filled with wonder and worship at the word who became flesh and dwelt among us? Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.